This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all-electronic self-driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The beginning CEU credit number was 49408. That's 49408. Thank you. Good afternoon, good morning, wherever you may be. Uh, Scott Egan here. I'm, uh, I'm your host for the day. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, if you had a chance to join us last night, we, we definitely had a very good time uh, playing some different games and uh, listening to some different music and uh, just generally uh, visiting with each other. And uh, it, was, it was a great time. So thanks for all that showed up last night. And today we've got some excellent speakers ahead. So I think uh, with that, we'll just dive right in. And I think our first panelist or person is here with us uh dr bill tashida uh, yes 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 so, i'm uh, here bill, good morning thank you for joining us today and uh i'm just going to turn the floor over to you and uh we'll go from there okay great i want to thank you and everybody uh for the invitation to be able to come to the conference and to speak and today, what I've been asked to speak about is my unique experience of what has happened to me. I have uh, always really wanted to become an eye doctor ever since I was six years old. And the school nurse did a vision screening. And I remember she told me, she says, oh, Bill, you know, I think that you're going to be so happy because with glasses, you're going to be able to see a lot better. And I said to her, I said, I don't really have any problems seeing anything. She says, well, we did a little screening and we think that the doctor could help. So my mom, she did take me to the optometrist and the doctor, his name happened to be Dr. Glasso, G-L-A-S-S-O. And I thought that was so funny that the man who makes the glasses has a name Glasso. But he was really a very, very nice man. And he said to me, you know, Bill, we're going to make you glasses, and this is how things will look. And he held up the lenses in front of my eyes, and I just could not believe how far away I could see details, and everything just looked so clear. And I said to my mom, I'm going to be able to hit baseballs really, really well once I get these new glasses. So a few days later, uh, they called me to come and pick up the glasses, and he adjusted them and everything. He was a great, great doctor. And my mom drove me home, and I was able to see that all the kids in the neighborhood were out on the street playing baseball. So I said, Mom, let me out here. I want to show everybody my new glasses. And so I got out of the car and started running towards all of my friends. And they just laughed hysterically at me. They couldn't stop. 
And they were saying, why are you wearing glasses? You're four eyes now. Now you're a nerd and all of these things. And, oh, gosh, it hurt my feelings so much that I just ran into the house. But the next day, I couldn't really avoid it because I had to see everybody at school. And they continued on and teasing and such. But I really just didn't say anything. But I did look at the chalkboard, and it was amazing Amazing how easily I could read everything that the teacher wrote on the board. So that day when I went home, I told my dad and my mom and my two older brothers that these glasses really, really helped me to see so much better. And I'm really, really happy. And I told them, when I get older, I'm going to become an eye doctor. I want to make glasses for kids but I want to make the glasses cooler so that the kids aren't made fun of. So year after year, I just set my eyes on being an eye doctor. And I went to UCLA for undergrad. And after four years there, I went to optometry school at Southern Cal. And that was another four years. So it was sort of a long haul for eight years. But eventually, I did become a doctor. And I was so happy. I decided that I was going to specialize on pediatric low vision, uh, primarily because I enjoyed working with the kids, and I really thought it was the kids who need the help. And I also learned that there are a lot of children who have poor vision. And so in the field of low vision, we designed specialized glasses that could help these kids. So during the years at optometry school, we became, you know, very, very comfortable with helping the kids with low vision. And I had heard of a pediatric practice here in Los Angeles. So I went over there and I introduced myself and I wanted to ask them for a job. Now, the the lead doctor, the head doctor was a doctor named Donald Getz. And I planned it to go there right about lunchtime so that maybe I could take him to lunch. And so he said, you know, I don't really have time to talk to you unless you want to go to lunch together. I said, okay, yes, let's go to lunch and I'll treat you. And he just smiled and he says, well, wait right here. I'll go get the car. And so he ran into the garage and he pulled out a sports car. It was a brand new 300 ZX Turbo. And that was a car that, oh my gosh, I wanted that car so badly. So we got in the car and he's driving around and this car was amazingly fast. And so we ended up going to a a sushi bar and uh, we really, really had a good time. It was where we were talking about cars We were talking about restaurants. We were talking about all of these different athletic teams. And it was just really wonderful to get along with him so well. So eventually we got back to the office and he said, by the way, what was the reason that you came out here today? And I said, well, actually, I just graduated and I would like to know if there are any job openings that you have. I told him that I specialize in pediatric low vision, 
And he says, well, that would be fantastic. When could you start? And I said, well, as soon as I receive my board results, I could start. He said, okay, you're hired. Let's go in and meet everybody. And all the staff in his office, they were just wonderful. So I began working in the office. And before long, we were very, very busy with many, many children who had low vision. It happens to be that at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and at the UCLA Jules Sinai Institute, there are many, many children with low vision. And they were very, very happy to refer these kids to us. So I really, really felt so good about being able to help these kids. And the families were so happy that we helped them. And before long, uh, we were going to the schools and talking to the teachers and the nurses and the principals about how we could help all of these kids. And uh, soon, it was where we were completely booked six days a week with children with low vision. And I had anticipated that it would take much, much longer, uh, but it really didn't. And so at that time, I told my girlfriend of eight years that I think that we having a patience that we could get married now. Would you like to get married? And she says, yes. So we did get married and we settled in the San Fernando Valley and uh, we, we bought our own home. And a couple of years later, we had our own children and life was just absolutely perfect. I, I was so happy with work. I I did not mind it at all working six days a week. And everything was pretty much going as planned. But I would say at about uh, 15 years later, after I was in practice for about 15 years, I began to notice that I wasn't seeing quite as well at night. One of the things that Dr. Getz and I, we would do, we would go to the UCLA basketball games. And after the games, we would drive through the canyons and come back to the valley and such. But, you know, it's very, very dark in these canyons. And uh, I noticed that at times I felt like I had to turn on the, the high beam headlights. And everything seemed to be okay. And I just thought, well, maybe it's just the fact that you know, these canyons are so dark. But there was one night when I was going to his home to pick him up to go to a game, I was walking to the doorstep and I tripped over a curb. I did not even see this curb. And I was so embarrassed that I was, you know, sprawled out on the concrete there like that. And so I decided, you know, I better go and get my eyes checked. So I made uh, an appointment at UCLA, and I was telling them about some of these symptoms that I had. And so they went through all of these different tests. They went through the peripheral vision. They went through the dark adaptometry. They did all of these different types of retinal checks. And I was shocked when they told me that I had a retinal degenerative disease. This was what they had labeled it as rod cone degeneration. And they, they were, you know, very, very 
interested in my family history because they said this is something that usually runs in families. And so we went to all the relatives that I had, and we really didn't have anybody who had this particular type. So they sort of concluded that maybe this is something that I've had all of my life, and I really just didn't notice it until more recently. Um, But as time went on, I could tell that my vision was getting worse. And within a year's time, I actually noticed that my visual acuity, it wasn't as clear. It had deteriorated to 20-25. So I tried to fit myself with new contacts and I couldn't improve my acuity. And then a few months later, my visual acuity was down to 20-40. And so I became, you know, very, very alarmed. And I then began to measure other aspects of my vision. And I saw that my contrast sensitivity was dropping. My color vision was dropping. All of these different visual skills that we were able to test, I could see that they were actually deteriorating. And it wasn't much longer until it was where my visual acuity was 2060. And at that point, I really had to think about things because I definitely did not want to miss any diagnosis when I'm examining a child. And I I realized that this is truly a real disease that I have. I was so upset, really, really upset. I was so scared that this was going to progress. And what would happen What would happen if I can't see well enough to work? I realize, for one thing, that I'm going to have to quit as an optometrist because I don't have the visual skills that allow me to identify diseases in children. I was also very concerned about my family. What are they going to say when they find out that I have this disease? My wife has not worked ever since we became married. And I was worried, and I'm certain she would be worried about our two children. Do they have this disease? So it really created a a very, very, very stressful situation. And so eventually, though, I had to speak with my wife, and I told her, you know, for the past year, my vision has really been deteriorating. And I cannot work anymore. I can't examine the eyes of children anymore. But I have put in a application to become a professor at the optometry school. I think that I should be able to do this because I know the material, but I just don't feel that I have the vision to see it in patients. And she became very, very emotional, very upset. And she said, does this mean you're going to become totally blind? And I said, no, I don't think so. No, not at all. And she says, what about the kids? Do our kids have this then? I said, well, I'm going to take them in and we're going to get them evaluated. And this is something that it's very, very nerve wracking, but we have to really try to hold it together in front of our kids. Well, we took the kids in. And fortunately, fortunately, their vision was normal. 
there were no signs of any types of vision problems. So we were very, very relieved with that. And I later heard from the optometry school, and the optometry school said that they would happy to have me be a professor and to teach low vision and pediatric vision care. And boy, I was so grateful. I was so grateful that I could have a job. And so I did accept that particular type of job. And the only problem was actually that the campus of the optometry school, it's in Fullerton, and I live out in Northridge. So I then started to look around to see if there were any other types of options. And I was then hired by the Braille Institute, where the Braille Institute works with children and adults with low vision, and they felt it would be very helpful for them to have me there so that with a lot of the clients who come there and have questions about low vision aids, I could meet with them, give them suggestions, and I could refer them to the correct place so they could try these types of visual aids. And I was so, so relieved and so thankful that everything at the Braille Institute has worked out. And I have been working there ever since. You know, one of the things that I have realized is that when you receive the education and the training for things, there are many, many different types of jobs that you can perform. And for me, it's been about five years now that I have been totally blind. I don't have any vision whatsoever. But that really has not affected my ability to perform my job. And the reason for that is at the Braille Institute, we do have optometry interns and resident fellows. So we have eye doctors who have a lot of experience in examining children and adults of all ages. And when they examine a child and they see something, they are able to describe it to me. And I know exactly what it is that they're talking about. That is really, you know, the beauty of at one time having vision. Because I have seen this before and my mind knows what it is, I could understand what it is that they are describing. And many times I could complete the sentence that they are saying, and we are on the same page talking about the same disease. So it is really helpful because of my experience. I could guide these doctors as they are planning the treatment. I can guide them as they are making a referral to a retina specialist for surgery. Or I could guide them as they are thinking, what medications may we prescribe for this condition? And the biggest role that I have there is that when we are thinking of what are the types of low vision devices, what kinds of vision activities would help this baby, these are the things that are very, very helpful to the doctors. And we then develop for the young babies, a vision stimulation program. 
where we will teach the parents how to do different activities that will stimulate the nerve connections in the visual part of the brain to promote the development of vision. This is what is really amazing is that with young infants and children below the age of five, we could perform these activities and we actually could measure how their vision improves. Another thing that we do is that we also have pediatric low vision specialists who work at the Braille Institute. And these staff personnel are assigned to a specific child. And they will go to the homes of these children and perform these activities with the children, usually two to three times a week. And they will show the parents how to do new activities. And then they will report back to us. And then we will modify the activities or the glasses or the magnifier. And we're already recommending electronic low vision televisions for these kids. Well, we could put books and pictures and toys and food items right underneath this screen and we could magnify it as large as we want to. And it's so interesting to see the kids as it gets bigger and they recognize that they're seeing something. Now, as the kids get a little bit older, we then will have our orientation and mobility specialists come to the home and they will recommend exercises to teach the children how to develop better balance, better posture. For some of these kids, we will recommend that they're going to begin using a cane, but there's many of the kids that don't need a cane and we will recommend sunglasses for them so that they're not bothered by the brightness when they go outside. We have other times for the kids when they're about three and a half, we often will recommend other low vision aids, such as telescopic glasses and telescopes, so the kids can go outside and look at things. So our vision specialists will take these devices to their homes, and they will teach the kids how to use it. And it is so nice to see how excited the children get when they're able to see their mom or their dad from across the street, or they see their brothers and their sisters. And as the kids get better, they begin to identify that there's the neighbor's dog or there's other animals out there. And the parents become so, so relieved because they realize that their child, their child is developing more vision. And these are visual skills that their child will use in their everyday life. They realize how these tools will help their child to learn to read visually. They'll be able to see things that the teacher puts on the chalkboard. Or, you know, they could go on a field trip and they'll be able to see other things. And as the kids become older than five, that is when we then introduce the computer technology. We have a lot of computers and software that are donated. So some kids will receive a software program that will magnify everything on the screen. 
and other kids will receive a software program that magnifies what's on the screen, but it also talks to them and it tells them what's on the screen. So as they get older, we have more and more technology so that these kids are able to do their schoolwork and be independent. We also will refer these kids to Airs LA. And Airs LA stands for the Audio Internet Reading Service of Los Angeles. And this is where we have volunteer readers who will record magazines and books and all sorts of things. And these will be available for the kids to access on their home computer on the Internet. So both children and adults can access all of these different types of reading materials. And it gives also the parents a chance to be able to just to sit down, hold their child, and they can listen to a story. Or dad might want to read the story and the child could see it in large print on the large computer screen. So overall, I am really very, very grateful for all the support of the families and the doctors and the teachers out there who have allowed me to continue to work in the field of low vision. It's also been very, very helpful because I believe it shows parents that people who are low vision or people who are blind can still be very functional in our society. There are many different types of jobs that a person who is blind or low vision may obtain. And this is very important because many parents, they believe that their child would never be able to work because they have low vision. So I am able to use different tools and technology and different techniques and the parents could see this is what they can do to teach their children how to use these visual aids as well. So I want to thank all of you for attending this lecture this morning. And I'd like to open it up. If any of you have any questions, please feel free to ask any type of question, whether it's related to the children's vision or my vision or anything related to low vision. Well, I'll, I'll ask a question and, and forgive me because I, but um, uh, kind of relating to my own case, I was born oh. with, with cataracts. I do and, have a hand uh, raised now if you want me to do it. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead with their question first. We'll come back to mine. Okay. I think I have Robert. Hi, Robert. Hey, Dr. Bill. <clears throat> um, have you had any famous children that you've uh, done anything with? Let's see. Well, you know, in my private practice, when I also had a private practice, which was in the Beverly Hills area. And so I would see a lot of kids who are actors, actresses, and singers. And as far as thinking about uh, children with low vision that I have seen, I actually cannot think of anybody who was a, a famous celebrity child with low vision i don't i don't recall any anyone with uh, a parent or anyone that's low vision 
Yes. Okay, I just, you know, being in the Los Angeles area, I figured you'd see see people like that. So. Oh, yes. Yes, we, we do have quite a few that are adults who have the low vision, but uh, due to privacy, I, I don't feel that it's appropriate for me to say their name. Oh, there no, I didn't some... want that. I just, I, oh, I just okay. was asking if you, if you did. Yes, and I'll tell you one thing that I found to be surprising. There are, you know, quite a few people who have vision impairment, and nobody knows about it. They have not revealed that to the general public. Interesting. Yep. That's sad, because they could help in the low vision uh, advocacy thing also, too. Uh, Oh, gosh, Robert. They really would be able to, because they're so so popular and so funny. Okay, thank you, All right, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Any other questions? I don't think so. Not right now. I mean, Dr. Bill. Uh, okay. Uh, Dr. Bill, going back to, to my question a little bit. Um, um, I was born with cataracts and I had a number of surgeries before I was two years old. And fortunately I was able to get vision in one eye and basically light and dark in the other. But um, in, in um, children with, that are born with cataracts, is that kind of rare and have there been any improvements over the years with that? Do you know? Yes, that's a very good question. What we do know is that cataracts are still quite prevalent among newborn children. And it is very, very important that if the cataract is very severe, that the lens of the eye with a cataract, it should be surgically removed. If we don't remove that cataract, light does not get into the eye and it doesn't stimulate the visual region of the brain. So the fact that they did remove your cataracts, that was something that was very, very good. Now, the difference of what would happen today is that uh, for many of the children who do receive cataract surgery, they will implant an artificial lens in the eye, and that will promote focusing of light on the retina and then stimulate the brain. And also, after the implants are placed in the eye, there's also going to be the vision stimulation therapy where we will patch one eye (laughs) and show that eye pictures and videos and all kinds of objects, and then we'll do it with the other eye. And this is for the hopes that both eyes can develop vision. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bell. I, I, I do remember as a child wearing an eye patch, so that's that's interesting. I just thought about that this morning. So. Oh, yeah. God. Scott, I have a question. This is Artis. I just wanted to ask, uh, what do you know about um, recent developments in um, surgeries such as with the optic nerve and so forth? I know years ago I read that they were going to explore how they could maybe rejuvenate people that – can't see because of that vision issue? Yes, that's a very good question. You know, the way that the eye sends information to the brain to see is that we have what's called the optic nerve, and it has, you know, millions of little fibers in there. 
And one of the things was that before, if you were to perform certain surgeries on the nerve, it would often kill many of the other nerves. But there are new advances in technology and surgery so that they are using lasers and other types of high-tech equipment as compared to scalpels or blades. And as a result, the results are really much more effective. So we are seeing that surgery is something that is improving. And uh, I would recommend that you would speak with a neuro-ophthalmologist to be able to give you the latest information of how it might be helpful for you. Thanks. You're welcome. Does anybody else out there have a question? I, I do have one more quick question, Dr. Bell. Um, thinking about it, you know, I, since I was incredibly young, I, I, I have no idea what the recovery time was from these surgeries that they did on me. But uh, with all the advances now and laser and, and whatnot for the more advanced surgeries, how long a recovery time would uh, an a infant or a young person have to recover from, from a surgery like that? Oh, boy, it's it has really, really improved. You know, the reason that it has improved is that with the new techniques and the use of laser and such, the laser will cut a much, much smaller line in the tissue. And as a result, it is something that could heal much faster. So, for example, if a child was born with cataracts, okay, that child is going to be ready to go home the next day. So it is much, much faster as compared to before when kids would be in the hospital for two to three weeks. Incredible. Dr. Bill, uh, Dan, a couple of hands up. Hi, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, Yes. Quick, uh, if I could impose upon your um, expertise, um, I've run over the, through my life and run across um, some individuals that have low vision or whatever, and they rely upon an optician, and they don't really elevate themselves to an optometrist, uh, let alone an ophthalmologist. Could you define the uh, um, uh, uh, education level of optician versus optima- optometrist versus ophthalmologist? Oh, Dan, that's really a great question. That's really a great question. You know, the most important thing as far as getting help if you have low vision is that whether it's going to be an optometrist or ophthalmologist or optician, uh, you really are hoping that that person has a lot of experience. Now, the first thing is that opticians are not doctors and opticians will generally go to opticianry school. And it is usually a two-year program. Now, there are some opticians who will then go and specialize in low vision. So all day, they do see people with low vision. And they're very, very effective because they know of all the different low vision devices, the low vision computers, the new lenses for low vision that are available. The next doctor that we talk about are the ophthalmologists. And ophthalmologists are surgeons of the eye. 
they will go to undergraduate for four years, and then they will go to medical school for four years. And after completing medical school, they will then go into an ophthalmology program for two to three years. Some of them are four years, and that is where they will become very, very skilled at performing eye surgeries. Now, there are some ophthalmology programs that specialize in low vision, but in general, the majority of ophthalmologists that I have met, they prefer to spend their time doing surgery rather than showing magnifiers and things. And the optometrists are probably the highest number of people who specialize in low vision. Uh, the optometrists are doctors. They'll go to undergrad for four years and then four years of optometry school. And there's also low vision residencies, which range between one and two years. So if a doctor is very interested in low vision, they will do that particular type of residency in low vision, and they will then be very, very skilled. So the bottom line is, if a person has low vision, they really want to do the research to explore what training and what experience that this person has. Any other questions? Rhonda, you're up. You should be able to unmute. Cheryl, you'll be up next. Hello, Dr. Bill. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's very inspirational. Um, my question to you would be, if there was some sort of stem cells or gene therapy that would cure your blindness or give you more functional vision, would you avail your, prevail, you know, would you use it um, or would you seek that treatment? Why or why not? Yes, if there was a particular treatment and this treatment was shown to be effective and repeated, I would definitely, definitely go for the surgery. The reason for it is even though I'm very content in my life right now, there is so much that we learn from what we see. So if I had the chance to have my vision back, it, it would just be so fascinating. And I would truly want to go and visit different countries of the world just to see what they look like. That that is so true. Uh, Dan here again, Doctor Bill. That's what, um, you know, being a person with RP degenerative disease. Uh, you know, I often used to phrase, you know, that dreaded sighted person syndrome. Yes. That, uh, if they don't see it, it doesn't exist. They don't get down on their hands and knees and look for it. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Doctor Bill, for your answer. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, Cheryl. You're up, and Mary Beth, you'll be next. Okay. Uh, Dr. Bill, I just wanted to let, <clears throat> let you know we always enjoy your lectures. Uh, I'm president of a support group, and I have been wanting to do a little um, education, if you will, with them to teach, uh, you know, the different eye diseases that we all have. You know, we're all blind, but what disease um, do you have that you have lost your vision and what has that done to your eye and compared to maybe some of the other eye diseases? 
Um, we just like to have some type of a overall um, definition maybe of it so we could learn about the different eye diseases. Um, do you have something already recorded um, that we could get into, you know, on, on your site that that we could, uh, you know, get into that, that would discuss those issues or no? I, I am not 100% certain, but if you do go to uh, www.airsla.org, and we have many, many, many podcasts that are on eye diseases and things. Okay. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mary Beth. Hi, Dr. Bell. Hi, Mary Beth. I'm Mary Beth, and I'm an orientation mobility specialist. And I get very frustrated when um, people come to me and they've told, they've shared their story. With, it took them a long time to get services. And I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions um, for me or for anybody, a way to get um, educate ophthalmologists and optometrists um, on low vision that there are services out there that people are don't just have to go home um, and feel like it's the end of whatever they were doing that they were enjoying. Do you have any suggestions that something that that I can do or a way to educate people that maybe don't know that there's services in their states? Yes. What I think would be very, very effective is if you and if one of your clients would go, you know, to a staff meeting for the ophthalmologist and let that student of yours explain to them how helpful orientation mobility has been for them. And, you know, if he or she would say, I didn't think that I needed it. I was so embarrassed to use a cane, but I fell or I fell down a flight of steps and I realized that I do need help. I think that when the doctors hear that the patients really do need the help, that they will then make that referral. Because if the doctors simply give the patient your phone number, I don't think that most of those patients will call you. Right. We need something to be more forceful. And if the doctors realize that, they're going to prevent these people from getting severely hurt or even killed. They will do that. Great advice. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey, Barbara Ann, you should be able to unmute. Hello, Dr. Dr. Bill. Hi, Barbara Ann. How are you? I was listening to you, and I'm my um, ophthalmologist and retina specialist that I've been going to since I was 17 years old, he told me that the back of my eye is shaped like a football, and because of that, it stretched my retina, and I have had two retina detachments, one in each eye. I still maintain sight. I'm like a high high functional vision right now but i am preparing because i don't know what's going to happen because sometimes it doesn't seem right but they won't give me a definite 
disease diagnosis, I mean, I can say retina detachment, but then he said because my retina is like paper thin, like very paper, like mm -hmm. stretched so far because of the shape of the back of my eye. And my, my eyeballs are pretty big too. I have what's called dark hazel eyes, but my eyeballs stick out too. Okay. Have you heard well, of such a thing? Yes, yes. There's many people with that. I think that your doctor is doing the correct thing. And the diagnosis is, in fact, called a retinal detachment. You do have a retinal detachment. So if, if you see your retina specialist, do you see him maybe three times a year or two times a year? Well, he has me seeing him once a year, but ever since I saw it when I was about 17, 18 years old, I saw like a dark, small, like a pin needle, dark spot in my eye that wouldn't go away no matter where I look. And I ran to the emergency room and that's when they said I, that was a pinhole retina starting to detach. So I caught the retina before they got real bad. Oh, good. What well, sounds to me is that you have a very good retina doctor. What I would recommend, I would recommend that you make appointments to see your doctor at least every six months. And number two, if you ever see flashes of light or any of these types of spots like what you saw before, you're going to see him or her immediately. Okay. I have one more quick question. My doctor also said to me, because of my operations, I have what's called um, scar tissue, which also is blocking some sight. And that if there was a way that they could come up with to remove it, it would give me some of my sight back that I might have lost due to scar tissue. Have you ever heard of such a thing as well? I mean, I know you have, so. <laughs> yes, you would have to ask your doctor if it would be safe to try to remove scar tissue or if it's too dangerous. Yeah. Thank you. I really thoroughly enjoyed listening to your story and I will hope that there is a way that um, we could find your testimony somewhere to share with other people. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Well, I want to thank all of you for attending this lecture and i hope that you guys have a wonderful time at the conference good night everybody thank, thank you, you dr bill dr. thank bill. you thank really you appreciate so your time all right uh one final thing on on this session and that would be that our closing ce code is 37753 and uh next up at 230 or 130 i believe depending on where you're at um will be our next uh, discussion uh, as we look a little deeper into the RS-15. So uh, that should be a very, very good topic to discuss today. So we will be back at uh, 2.30.